Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where we do movie discussions where the genre in the movie is decided by the role of a die, and we also do interviews. And I hope everybody that's listening to this episode goes to the back catalog and listens to some of these older interviews and episodes, because if you do, my guest today, Ansel Farage, is on there many times. We have a couple interviews with Ansel, and we also have some epic movie discussions with him, and he's did one not that long ago with Junior Bonner, which I um, hope everybody goes back to and enjoys when we start our Sam Peckinpah retrospective. But this time, we rolled the dice. We hit drama is what Ansel got, and he picked Hanover Square from 1945. And I can't wait to with us to talk about it. But how are you doing today, Ansel? I am good. I'm, I'm in the middle of post-production on the great Nick D, my upcoming comedy, and um, just dealing with a lot there, but uh, I'm happy to talk about uh, Hangover Square, which is a, a movie and a book that I really love, and it's finally getting a bit of a renaissance. I have a lot to say, <laughs> as usual. Yeah, well, we have a love for a lot of these films, and... This particular film I had not seen until you picked it. And, and people say, how could you not have seen this film or that film? And like I always say, and I'm sure you say the same thing, there's millions of movies out there. It's hard to see them all. But when somebody says, hey, I want to watch this film or talk about this film, that usually is to me a flag that it must be something of value. you know. And it doesn't mean I'm always going to see the same value that you do. But in this one, I think we're going to be speaking highly of it in both in, in a lot of different ways. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun with it. Yeah, yeah. And this one is is sadly a little more obscure. Um, I mean, certain you know cinephiles and and film enthusiasts know of it. I don't know how many people have seen it. Um, I've seen a little bit more uh, appreciation posts online in the past year or two for it. Um, but it, I mean, it is it's a forgotten classic. I guess I would call it refer to it as that that is true i mean it but a lot of films regardless of how old they are can fall fall into that trap sometimes sometimes it could be a film that came out a few years ago and just because of the reception it got or or lack of publicity it just falls to the wayside and then people discover it and then other times it's a film that could have came out decades and decades ago and did really well at that time but over time fell into obscurity this one um, is, is, is a little bit of like the more of the modern type that took place a long time ago where it came out. It didn't do well in the box office as well as yeah. you'd think it would. And, um, and But now it's starting to get that, like you said, that renaissance where people are realizing. And, and that happens. It's just just like with current movies. Yeah. Movies come out and at the wrong time. Maybe maybe it was the um, marketing. Who knows? It just it, Or the public just wasn't ready for it at that particular moment. There's so many factors. Yeah. I mean, when, when this, when Fox released this in 1945, it was a pretty big hit and, you know, there were, it got a lot of critical acclaim. It's just one of those titles that over time, you know, fell into the cracks uh, and I think was overshadowed by the lodger. And I, I think a great amount of why it's been quote unquote forgotten is because of the lack of availability. I, when I was, a, when I, first discovered it um it was in some film history I, I guess we can really dive into that in a moment but it was not available until 2007 when fox released it as part of their um fox or classics box set which had 
John Brown's other two films, The Undying Monster and uh, The Lodger. Um, so that's when it first kind of became available. I don't think it was really shown on television much, uh, you know, throughout the uh, 70s or 80s, uh, certainly not in the 90s. And um, and then uh, back in 2015, I might be wrong, but Kino Lorber put out a Blu-ray. Um, but it, it, it's been kind of obscure still. Uh, it's not had a, a spotlight. It's not had, you know, the reverence that even the lodger gets. And the lodger, I would say, only gets it because it's um, connection to the Alfred Hitchcock original. Um, but yes, Hangover Square. I don't know. Yeah, I'm going to start rambling again. <laughs> I've got a lot. But it's, it's it's perfectly fine. That's what we're here to do is talk about it. So I mean, this this is the time to ramble about the movie or to talk about the movie. I mean, we're you know, it's it's the whole point of it. And I really enjoyed it. And I now, Laird Kriegar is a name that not a lot of people know. You know, like you said, no. film historian, film enthusiast would know the name. And I remember the first time I came aware of the name was at Monster Bash with Gregory Mank doing a one-hour presentation on Laird Krigar and his life history and talking about his different films. And just prior to his presentation, I got to see The Lodger for the first time. So yeah. here you got to see the movie, and then I was the presentation was right there. So it was a perfect setup, you know, and it was just like, wow, is all I could say is his performance and, and the movie – and, and Mr. Mank's presentation was just amazing. I know you probably wish you were there for the presentation, but yeah. it happens. And it, now to get to see Hang, Hang, Hangover Square with it and just to see him in that starring role, you know, and, and Lodger, he was in the starring role too, in a sense, not billed as the top billing, but in this one, he is right. the number so, one bill and he's he in carries, virtually every scene. Yeah, he carries Hangover Square. It's his vehicle. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's the ultimate tragedy is that he, he, in essence, sort of destroyed himself with this film and with with his whole his whole life. Uh, and I I agree. Uh, Greg Mank's book, Laird Krigar, uh, it's a fantastic book, very depressing, and it really you know showcases how this man made himself into a a important Hollywood commodity, and then in essence, sort of rejected it because they wanted him to be one thing that he didn't want to be and, and his own personal demons, his own, you know, repressed homosexuality and his own just physical build and longing to be Tyrone Power, which he couldn't. Um, and and it all is, I think, perfect with, with the character of George Harvey Bone, especially in the novel of he is this, portly somnambulist they even describe him as a somnambulist in the book he's just this big guy this oak that doesn't do much he's not even a, a concert pianist or anything he's just an alcoholic uh, madly in love with this bitch of an actress and who she just abuses and uses him and is constantly um screwing around with with freddie the other drunk that because uh, there's there's a whole collection of alcoholic friends that they just sort of hang out with and um, and they use him and insult him and um, and he wants to be a 
he he wants to be the Byronic romantic figure to save Netta and to love Netta and be loved by Netta. And um, it destroys him too. And it's just, I mean, it is perfect casting, uh, especially where uh, Larry Krigar was at that point in his life. Um, but yeah, it is, I mean, the tragedy that we, we lost one of the finest actors that we, we really could have had. And, um, but in a, in a way he did pave the way for Vincent Price. Um, Vincent Price inherited Larry Krigar's legacy. He even Vincent Price even gave the eulogy at Larry Krigar's funeral. But yeah, it's a it's a it is a perfect role for him, and he does give everything. Oh, he does. And since we're talking about Larry Krigar, um, one of the things I want to mention, to listeners, is you probably heard a couple episodes back. Um, Gregory Mank was on with me to talk about Swingali, and. When I at the end of the episode, I asked him if he had anything he wanted to say for a little bit about Laird Krigar because we're going to be doing Ansel and I are going to be doing Hangover Square, and he did. So, listeners, we're going to play a few minutes of that. It's basically about five minutes long, and we're going to hear Mr. Mank talk about Laird Krigar. Yeah, Steve, thank you. Um, yes, about Laird Krigar, there's so much to say. Uh, the first one being, of course, that uh, it, one of the great tricks in Hollywood history is to say his name correctly. Uh, and that is that uh, most people think he's Laird Krieger, which is I always thought for years. But, uh, yeah, the last name is, is pronounced Krigar as in cigar is what is the way that he used to actually put it. Uh, yeah, Laird Krigar as in cigar. Um, a brilliant character actor who uh, really hit the screen in, in 1941 in a film called Hudson's Day played a re- remarkable variety of character roles, uh, frequently as villains, but really all kinds of characters. He was, he was brilliant in comedy, uh, brilliant in drama, uh, especially brilliant in melodrama. And he made his great, great claim to fame as Jack the Ripper in the 1944 film, The Lodger. Uh, that film was so incredibly successful and his performance as the Ripper, so magnificent, uh, so, so in depth, so different. Uh, that uh, 20th Century Fox decided to sort of keep him in that rut. And, of course, no actor wants to go through the rest of his life typed as Jack the Ripper. But he sort of faced that uh, existence uh, afterwards, and he found himself doing the picture that uh, you're going to be talking about tonight, Hangover Square, uh, which was shot in the uh, late summer and early fall of 1944, uh, and this was, of course, based on uh, a book by Patrick Hamilton, titled Hangover Square, uh, greatly changed, very much revamped back to the close to the Jack the Ripper period a little bit later. But uh, nevertheless, a, 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 a certain facsimile to, to the Jack the Ripper film. And um, Krigar played a, a demented uh, concert pianist who uh, has dead moods during which time he destroys anything in his path. Uh, he did not want to make this movie uh, is something to perhaps be aware of while you're watching it. He was very, very unhappy about doing it. He tried very hard to get out of it. Um, the studio brought down an enormous amount of pressure on him to force him to do it. Uh, he finally agreed, but he became extremely uh, anxious and, and, and really resolved that he was going to change his physical type. He was always a heavy man. And he decided the best way to try to change his film type was to try to change his body. Go from being uh, a man who at this point weighed in the upper 200s down to somebody who weighed maybe about 220 was his target weight. 
somewhat unrealistic for him because he was also very tall. But nevertheless, that's what he did. So throughout this film of Hangover Square, he was dieting, torturously dieting, uh, trying to get his weight down. And um, even though he was very unhappy, even though he was he was having great difficulty on the film uh, because his health was was breaking by the day because of his diet, he he gave it everything he had as an actor. As, this is the only way he could work. He he he, he couldn't stint. He couldn't pull back. Uh, he couldn't give a bad performance. And so he, he's absolutely brilliant in Hangover Square. And um, it, it, at the end, he gives a, a concerto. And there is one, still just mention one little scene in the movie that I always love. And that is that uh, while he's giving a concerto, the hall will set on fire. Uh, he sets it on fire himself. And he runs up into the upper part of the theater and looks down at the, everything burning and this, this terrible conflagration that he's created. And he takes a curtain, a piece of, piece of, the, of the drapery that is there uh, at the box where he's standing, and he wipes a tear from his eye while he's crying. Uh, it's one of the last images of Larry Krigar ever caught on film. Shortly after the film was finished, uh, in October, it went back in for a lot of retakes in November, and then in December, uh, he was in the hospital. He went in to have an abdominal operation uh, uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which was he felt it would control his intake of food. And while he was in the hospital, he suffered uh, two heart attacks, and the second one proved fatal, and he died on December the 9th, 1944. Uh, he was only 31 years old. Um, it's incredible to think of what he might have accomplished in Hollywood if he had lived, if he had played many, many other roles. Uh, again, the breadth of his versatility was absolutely amazing. And he, if he had would have been able to uh, escape, at least at times, from this uh, villainy especially that, uh, that he had developed, in which he was excellent, uh, and played a variety of these roles, done more comedy, done more straight acting, as they would have called it, um, you really wonder what he would have achieved and, uh, you know, how famous he would have become. Um, very much missed. He's been gone since 1944, as I say, but even though uh, many, many devout horror fans, devout fans of every genre, uh, know, still know the name Larry Krigar. They still miss him very much uh, that, he, that he never went on uh, to these the heights that he should have and that... Um, they, they really relish Hangover Square because it's the largest role he ever had in a film. Uh, he's in almost every, every sequence. He's um, just wonderful to watch. Uh, his his uh, presence, uh, the torment he shows in the role, uh, everything. It, it's, it's, you'll, you'll be glad you saw it, and, and you'll be glad you saw him. So I appreciate the opportunity to speak about him again. Uh, it's been a while. And um, uh, marvelous actor, marvelous man. I hope you all have uh, a good time tonight with the, uh, with the new podcast. So, Steve, thank you very much for the opportunity to, to, to speak on this issue. Great. Thank you for joining me. And again, listeners, Laird Krigar, A Hollywood Tragedy. You can find it on Amazon and different places where books are sold. Highly recommend it. Thanks again, Greg. Thank you. So Ansel, what did you what did you think about Greg's you know information? I mean, it's it's a nice little summary of of what he really dives into in his book, and I really suggest that 
everybody, you know, checks out his book and it's not even that long. I, um, because sadly, Larry Craigard's life was not long. Larry Craigard died at the age that I'm at, <laughs> which is really sad. But, um, uh, I mean, also Greg Mank is like one of my very favorite historians and writers. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a big fan and I'm honored to, to have, that he made a cameo appearance in the episode that I'm on. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll have to do, uh, I know Greg said he wants to listen to this episode. So Greg, I'll throw it out there. If there's a movie you want to pick and Ansel can, and I can work it in the schedule, we can get all three of us together and do a movie discussion. I'm sure Ansel will probably go with any movie you pick. I, I would love it. I've read pretty much all of his books. Carl uh, Lugosi, Hollywood Calder, and Lord Fair. I, that would be so much fun. Um, and also now I got to correct myself. I'm, I'm my OCD. I missed, I made a mistake. It wasn't uh Freddie that, that Netta was messing around with it. in the novel. His name is Peter. Um, and he's a bit of a, he's a bit of a Nazi actually. Um, he's very pro Mussolini and Hitler and not a nice guy at all. But, um, these are these, these unsavory characters that Patrick Hamilton was writing about. It's a very bleak, uh, dark, masterpiece just like the film and let's go into it now the book takes place in one time frame and the movie takes place at another so if you want to talk about the differences between the book and the movie um now yes. would be a good time and then we and during that if you can give a little synopsis of what happens in the movie yeah i the book and the movie are, are, are completely different um there's very few similarities but for the most part they're totally different um i'm, I'm going to sort of backtrack a bit and say how I discovered it. Uh, Mark Alan Vieira, who's a, a very gifted um, film historian and photography historian, uh, and just put a book out about George Burrell. Uh, he wrote a book uh, that came out about 2004 called Hollywood Horror. And from the Gothic to cosmic. And uh, there's a whole chapter on, you know, 1940s films and psychological films, psychological horror films. And um, that was where I first sort of read about hangover square and he described it as he gave a brief pitch to the book which i i don't know what for whatever it was it just hooked me with the idea he said it's a uh, it's about an alcoholic man who takes care of stray cats and cries during movies and something about that just captured me <laughs> um but it takes place in 1938 in london just before the outbreak of world war ii and uh, that was the intention originally that Fox would do it in 1938 era uh, black and white film noir, um, and not the Victorian gaslight era of the lodger. And um, it, it's basically, as I said, it's about this alcoholic named George Harvey Bone who doesn't really do much in life. Um, he enjoys the, enjoys golf occasionally, and he's pursuing this horrible uh, but beautiful actress she's really a prostitute uh, but she would like to be an actress uh, Netta Longden who is just terrible to him but he suffers from dead moods so um, if you don't mind I'd actually like to read the first page of the novel because it's it's um, really sets things up it takes place uh, starts on Boxing Day 1938 uh, it says click here it was again he was walking along the cliff at Huntington and it come again. Click. Or would the word snap or crack describe it better? 
it was a noise inside his head, and yet it was not a noise. It was the sound which a noise makes when it abruptly ceases at a temporarily deafening effect. It was as though one had blown one's nose too hard and the outer world had suddenly become dim and dead. And yet he was not physically deaf. It was merely that in this physical way alone could he think of what had happened in his head. It was as though a shutter had fallen. It had fallen noiselessly, but the thing had been so quick that he could only think of it as a crack or snap. It had come over his brain as a sudden film induced by a foreign body might come over the eye. He felt that if only he could blink his brain, it would at once be dispelled. A film, yes, it was like the other sort of film, too, a talkie. It was as though he had been watching a talking film and all at once the soundtrack had failed. The figures on the screen continued to move, to behave more or less logically, but they were figures in a new, silent, indescribably eerie world. Life, in fact, which had been for him for a moment ago a talkie, had all at once become a silent film and there was no music. He was not frightened because by now he was used to it. This had been happening for the last year, for the last two years. In fact, he could trace it back as far as his early boyhood. Then it had been nothing so sharply defined, but how well he could remember what he called his dead moods, in which he could do nothing ordinarily, think of nothing ordinarily, could not afford, could not attend his lessons, could not play, could not even listen to his rowdy companions. They used to rag him until at last it became an accepted thing. Old Bone was said to be in one of his dotty moods. Mr. Thorne used to be sarcastic, or is it one of your delightfully convenient periods, periods of amnesia, my dear boy? So it's something that's, he's just, it's a form of schizophrenia. And during these periods of schizophrenia, he he's this other darker side of him is comes out and just wants to kill Netta. And he makes the decision, he's going to kill Netta long then before spring and then flee to Maidenhead. Uh, where he grew up, where everything was nicer, where, where you know, he grew up with his childhood, in, in, during his childhood with his little sister who died. Uh, and then, you know, it'll click again. And he's this other side of him where he's just hopelessly in love with this terrible woman. And it goes back and forth over the course of a year um, from Boxing Day till the following spring. Um, and uh, he does i mean spoiler he does eventually kill her and um abandons his cat in his apartment and flees to maidenhead and kills peter as well with a golf club and uh realizes when he gets to maidenhead that nothing is is how it used to be from his childhood and this whole this whole thing has been a waste so he rents a, a room and gasses himself and is dead and um they just the war breaks out by then. So there's just this little uh, inscription in the newspaper that says, I'll read the last page. He died in the early morning, and because of the interest then prevailing in the war, was given very little publicity by the press. Indeed, only one newspaper, a sensational picture daily, gave the matter any space or prominence, bringing out this crude epitaph, the headlines, Slaves to found gas, thanks of cap. And that's it. It's a very... Very bleak and awful, but so well written. And um, the Fox film bears ultimately very little resemblance. Yes, there's George Harvey Bone. He does have these moments of schizophrenia. There is Netta. She is a now a, uh, a saloon singer because you can't really do a prostitute who would like to, you know, climb the ladder of, of life 
and use uh, George Harvey Bone to her advantage. He does have a cat momentarily, um, not in the novel, the cat is throughout. And um, he does kill her in both. And uh, there is the dinner where he takes her to Perrier's in the novel. It's this very upscale, posh restaurant in London. And uh, they, they do go, to, I don't know, I don't remember that they named the restaurant in the film. They do have this dinner that goes wrong. And that's ultimately about it. That's that really the overlap uh, between the book and the novel. But anyway, when I, when I discovered this, when I read about it originally in Mark Vera's book, Hollywood Horror, I was just captivated by this idea, this film noir set in London just for the outbreak of the war of this disturbed man that's hopelessly in love. And, um, and I was a teenager at that point. Uh, the film was completely unavailable, could not find it anywhere. Uh, and uh, because of the, the idea of what could have been and my love of noir, my love of classic film and, and history and whatnot, I decided, oh, I'm going to make my own one day. And then um, when I was in, I, had, I wrote, I got the novel, I read the novel. Um, and then I wrote a script that's very, very faithful to the novel. And uh, then uh, the day after I graduated high school, we started filming the movie of the of, of my script, which is basically the novel brought to life. And um, I was uh, 17 at that point. We shot it in black and white, did it all on blue screen. So I superimposed period era London behind us and, we did our best British accents throughout, and I played Peter because I wasn't tall enough to be George Harvey Bone. And um, and uh, yeah, I don't think I have any plans for anybody to ever see it, but I still love it. I still love the novel. It's still something I think about from time to time. Of well, maybe one day I could do it again. But I also now, you know, having been in the industry for twenty some years. Uh, I know how film works and, and what's a marketable piece of, of work. And I, I wonder if an audience would care to sit through something so bleak and, and ultimately unresolved. Um, and I see the benefits. I hate when I finally did see the film, the Fox film, I did not like it at all. Because it wasn't the book; it was the lodger over again. It, 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 it was. It just felt routine to me. And um, over time, my my view has considerably softened. And, and you know, with this understanding of, of how the film world works in the industry and what makes a, a marketable film that can draw in an audience, I, I've come to understand and appreciate the changes that they that they did to the film. And you know, Bernard Herrmann's concerto is just amazing uh between that and larry Krigar's performance i mean that's what makes this film basically a classic uh, I, I mean even john brown's direction there's so much going on in that film the, the change of seasons the 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 opening camera shot where he where larry Krigar kills uh uh francis ford is and you know, john ford's brother is the the shopkeeper um there's there's a lot to appreciate and i i see why they did what they had to do and I accept it. <laughs> um, and, um, and it's its own thing. It's its own beast. And, um, yes. 
Well, I, like I said, I was, when you picked the movie, it was my first time watching it. And for listeners that want to watch it, it's a recording. It's currently readily available on YouTube. So if you put in Hang, Hangover Square 1945, you'll have – You'll be able to watch it. It's uh, like an hour and 18 minutes, hour and 17 minutes, something like that. It's, it's yeah. a very, you know, well-paced movie. It moves along at a nice brisk pace, doesn't have any lag time in it. And it definitely keeps your interest going all the way through. So I love the pacing of it. Um, Larry Kriegar is just, he, like we said earlier, he carries the film. And it's just amazing how he does that when he's zoned out, so to speak, when he's in one of his um, – um, stages. Yeah, he's where, living that role. He's living it. He is, and it's just it's it. But I like how the the director and the cinematographer, or whoever came up with the photo effect of showing it when he's in that hazed state where they're kind of making everything look a little off kilter as from his point of view. Yeah. So you know right away he's just not he's not totally there. And the movie makes no mystery about that he is a killer. Because that's that's right there off the bat. There is opening scene. I mean, they could have did this in a way where they didn't show that it was him right off the bat and make you wonder like, is this was it really him or not until the end? They could have played that up and maybe had other yeah. suspects. And that could be a way a path for a different filmmaker to go. But I like, but part of me likes that they did show him. It, it kind of reminds me of like the uh, Columbo episodes that are so popular or other ones where they show you who the killer is. And then you go through the rest of the movie to see what's going to happen. So it's, uh, so it's something that's nice to see. And I think it's good to follow that and, end of the story. And in the novel, he's not a killer there. He's not a murderer from the start. He's just this alcoholic, lonely dreamer. Uh, the only killings finally occur at the very end of the novel. Uh, you know, in the film, Netta is dispatched kind of in the midpoint. Um, and he, yes, there are, there's three other killings that occur in the film, but that's not at all the book. He just, he, he kills, uh, Netta and Peter at the very end, but he's, he's an innocent, he's an innocent, hopeless romantic from the start. So that's, that's another change. And that, that is, you can tell they did that because of the lodger of, you know, Jack the Ripper kills right up front. So let's carry on this, this thematic, uh, motif. And, you know, we can market this as a horror film. Um, yeah. So, so. And I think what, what hurt it in that way was having the same director and, and a lot of the same major cast going into from the lodger into this and, and kind of setting yeah. it back in that period. I think if it would have been set in the thirties or the twenties or whatever, you know, like they could, or they could have moved it into the forties for all intents and purposes. I mean, they could have put it any time, um, yeah, obviously Daryl Danik though. Yeah, Daryl Danik was like, you have all these sets already. We have all these, these sets on the back lot. Let's just make it Victorian. Because there was a couple drafts of the script that was set, you know, at the time contemporary contemporary London. And um, I always there's another Lake Parker fantastic performance. I wake up screaming. The film noir with Victor Mature and, and Carol Landis as he plays this this also obsessive cop, and it's a contemporary i want to say new york uh noir and i i was looking at that at the time when when i wanted to make this you know years ago of like if it had if it had looked like that you know cars and the whole just such a different atmosphere and something else that they wanted to do uh marlena dietrich was approached to play netta and that would have been 
incredible. But she quickly sensed trouble because Larry Craigard didn't want to do this film. He hated John Brown. He just hated the whole idea. She dropped out. And then uh, Geraldine Fitzgerald was approached. And the interesting thing with Geraldine Fitzgerald is that Patrick Hamilton, who wrote the book, based Netta on Geraldine Fitzgerald. And he used to stalk her around London. And they knew each other. And he was a bit obsessed with her. So he, it's, it, he's, writing, <laughs> he's writing what he knows. Um, and she quickly said no. So they put Linda Darnell, who's a contract player at the time, as Netta. She does a really fine job. Um, I mean, they, the whole cat, you know, George Sounders is always good. Um, it's Everybody does their best. They really step it up from The Lodger. I think it is a better film than The Lodger, honestly. Um, but yeah, I mean, so many of the changes that were imposed upon the project were because of The Lodger's runaway success. So let's just do it again, because that's how, you know, Hollywood's mentality and I think it costs more than the laws with the retakes and with all the various things. I mean, the, the climactic scene, they have snow falling and like all this stuff. So, uh, yeah, sorry again. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm getting passionate here. Oh, no, no, no. It's, it's fine. It's fine. And what I loved about it when I was, when I was watching the opening credits, you know, so it's telling you who the cast is going to be. And I see Alan Napier's name. I'm like, oh. Yeah. Alfred's going to be in this. This is cool. And, and you always forget how tall Alan Napier is because I think he was six foot six or something like that. He was a tall yeah. man. And um, Laird Kriegar was six foot three, I believe. So they're both tall yeah. gentlemen. But I mean, it's just, you know, Alan, you know, with that, uh, it's so, so amazing how he played Sir Henry and goes through. I mean, yes, it's a small role and things like that, but I still just enjoy seeing him there with that. And that adds an extra layer of dignity. And of course, you know, Faye Marlowe playing his daughter, Barbara was just, yeah. Both one- of these characters don't exist at all in the book. It's all made up for the film. I understand. But I, I still you yeah, just yeah. love her because she's the girl next door, literally the girl next yeah. door, you know, or the girl yeah. in the square. Uh, and how they, and you could just tell right off the bat how much she just wants to to be with George you know, and just want to, yeah. ha- and just wants to, to, just wants them to be together. And Sir Henry wants them to be together. And then of course, as the movie goes on, as a lot of gentlemen in these types of movies do, they fall for the wrong girl, the bad girl, the, the, oh. you know, and that kind of thing with Netta and the how femme the femme fatale and how she just, I love the scene where they meet after she gets done singing where they meet proper and Mickey's there and yeah. he comes over and says, Oh, let me, uh, I can help you with that song or whatever. And he goes over to play music and she's saying to Mickey, is, 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 is he anybody that I should know? And he goes, Oh, is it? Oh, so he's somebody important. And that, and then she perks up. She's like, Oh, he's somebody above where I'm at. I can use right. him to move up the ladder and, and, and and you can just see the, I love in her acting how the, you can see the wheels clicking. Oh, yeah. With just her the body machinations language. of it, yeah. And how, yeah. Yeah. Yes. And, and keeps using them, get another song. Get another, and, and George realizes this during the movie and says, I, you just want another one. And then he still gets sucked in. I'm like, oh, man, you know, but you're addicted. You know she's a drug yeah. that's bad for you, and you are you are just addicted to it, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. You know, it's just it's so tragic. That's classic noir, of you know, falling, crawling, coming, crossing paths 
the wrong woman and getting completely screwed over by her and ending up, you're going to die, but you won't regret it. James Elroy said something to that effect, although I think he used stronger language than than I'm allowed to (laughs) on this show. (laughs) But um, it's it's classic noir tropes and and themes. And and Linda Darnell does play the hell out of the role. I mean, she's she's excellent. She's, she's, uh, you know, she looks like Netta. Um, she plays a good, wicked bitch, I'm just going to call it. Um, but there's still some part of me that's like, oh, man, what would Marlena Dietrich do like? That the whole alchemy of the entire film would be totally different. We probably would remember the film a bit more. Um, but uh, Linda Darnell does a, a great job, and uh, we don't like her, and that's the whole goal of her of her performance so and i've seen her subsequently in a couple other things and i just it's terrible to say but then that's also just a sign of really great acting like i don't like her (laughs) because i think of her as netta and um and she wasn't you know but um it's a it's a memorable performance equally memorable as as larry craigars oh it it is and Mickey, played by Michael, um, was it Dine or Dean? Uh, D-Y-N-E. Dean. Dean. Yeah. I thought he did a good job as being her co-conspirator because he knows what's going on. And he's just like, yeah, let's just milk this gravy train for as long as we can. And he's just just riding that thing. But he also knows that eventually she's going to cut him loose. You know, so he's trying, so he's always getting his money, like equal amount right off the get go, getting his cut because I think he knows it's just a matter of time before he's no longer of use and we'll have to move on to finding his next um, mark, so to speak, to rise with his little, you know, fame of playing the piano and doing the same thing all over again, which you can probably tell in my, in my head canon, this is something that he's done before. This is, this is like, a, oh, yeah. you know, so it's, I think, I think of it that way. Yeah. He's very much availed to him. And I mean, he's inspired by the character of Peter. There is the character of Mickey in the book, but he's just this quiet, introverted drunk that sort of tags along with the group in the, in the, and their various bar pub crawls, I should really call it. But um, yeah, he's, he's just as devious as Netta. Um, but doesn't obviously have Netta's alluring power because he's just a man. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, again, everybody brings their A game to this. To this, I, I mean, it, it's a B film. It is a B film. It's not a Fox prestige picture. It's not Song of Bernadette or Leave Her to Heaven or something like that, where they would have, you know, or or Laura, where they would have thrown the weight of the studio behind it. But um, at the same time, though, there is so much. Um, I mean, General Zanuck, after they screen, after they put an assembly cut together, he you know, would review it, and everybody would be involved with the the screenings, and, and he would, at the end of each reel, he would give notes and how do we improve this. So the studio was just as invested, but it's a, it's a it's a smaller production that's just not as important. Yet you'd never tell from the the work that went into it and the production value behind it and the use of studio resources in the great era of the studio system. Um, I call it great because I come from the independent side of 
things now. And, you know, it'd be so nice to just have that, you know, Fox back lot that no longer exists. That's now the Century City Mall, <laughs> where it was. Um, and uh, and all the technicians and craftsmen and contract players. But um, another time, another era. It is what it is. You know, you can't go back. You can yeah. only go, go forward. And one of the things I noticed in the movie, and I think it really goes to show it's, it's a, it's a, it's a line that you can always say it's like a throwaway line, but when I was rewatching it. I was realizing that line has a lot more importance to the character than it was given probably way too. And that is when Dr. Middleton, George Sanders character is talking to George and he's, and he's diagnosing him a little bit about his mental problem, you know, and, and saying, well, you know, this is what's triggering it and you should try to avoid this and this and try to pull back from the music. And George goes something to the effect of music is my life is the most important thing in my yeah. life. And Dr. Middleton corrects him and says, no, 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 your life is the most important thing. Go to the end of the movie. And George would, George knew himself very well because he's playing the piano, playing his music while a building is burning down around him, knowing he is going to die doing this, but he must play that piece that he created to its end. Yes. And which goes to show, yes, in George's being, the, the, the work, the creative side, the music is more important than his life. And I thought, yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know, you probably picked up on it, but it was just one of those things where it was just to me that that line, but then it comes to be used again and, but not said, but shown, which is so great about film is that, you know, the, the show don't say, and they didn't have to, they didn't have to like a lot of films nowadays. And even some back then would repeat it and, and say just the, the good, say the obvious thing, but I love it when it's just shown. And then when you think about the dialogue said earlier, it all ties together. Yeah. Yeah. And even the, it, the, the whole scene uh, between George Saunders and, and uh, Larry Pegar, there's, there's a payoff to it too, but when he's in the building and it's burning around him and stuff, and they want to go back in and rescue him. And George Sanders says, no, it's better this way. It just it's I mean it's, it's in its own way it's not the novel but it's brilliant um, and and to get into the concerts on Macabre because that's a, a showstopper of a sequence the way that um, first of all what Bernard Herman composed uh, is is just um, it's it's so it, it captures everything about this character and his mind and you know, in, in my own head, it's like, okay, if I were ever to do this film again or do it, you know, properly and not, you know, as a teenager in a garage uh, with the blue screen, I would love to use that music because that is still, it, if you were to do the novel, it still is so perfect for, for who that guy is. And the way that John Brom shoots that concerto scene and he's moving the camera in time with the music and he, and that, that moment that Greg Mank describes it, where where uh, Larry Pregar flees to the balcony and let, gets to the top of the balcony, also the music crescendos uh, to this peak, uh, and even the music there, it's tragic, and we cut to that close-up of him with a tear, and it's just everything is timed like a musical 
to the music. Uh, it is a work of art. Um, and the concerto did inspire um, Stephen Sondheim when he wrote Sweeney Todd. He based the basic um, musical motif on Bernard Herrmann's Concerto Macabre from Hangover Square. And uh, uh, yeah, that whole that whole last third act is is worth watching just by itself. Even, I mean, even the I love the bonfire scene, which is you know he carries the body up to the top of the bonfire on Guy Fawkes night, and then steps away from the bonfire, and everybody is just dancing in a circle around the bonfire, and the music just. Is just becomes this this nightmare. Uh, the way that the music is used and and played throughout in increasingly growing themes until it finally all congeals and comes together in the in the concerto performance uh, is another thing. And I just was not able to appreciate when I first saw the film because uh, I was looking for something totally different. But uh, it's there's real brilliance in the filmmaking and um, at, at all of the music, the way the camera is used and, and visually echoes the music. Um, yeah. <laughs> it, it was beautifully done, beautifully filmed in, in how it's set it up. And I do love it how he was, you know, because he, he, George had just started the fire prior to going up to the balcony to see the music being played and because he could hear it and he had to, he's like, I must, can I not see the end? I have to hear the end. And they're like, no, we're going to take you away. And, and it, it and he, well, he had to hear it and it was being, because he had listeners, he had started playing it at the beginning, but then he got to the point where he was flashing back. He was starting to realize he had done all these terrible things. It was starting to come back yeah. to his, his normal consciousness and he had to stop performing. And Barbara, who had always been practicing it and knew it like the back of her hand, took over for George and was now playing. And that's when the Dr. Middleton in the, the Scotland Yard um, escorts George away and to this one room. And then that when he's, he hits this one thing, which starts the fire. And I tell you, these houses back then, they went up like nothing. I mean, in the beginning of the movie, that, that, that the pawn – shop house went up this one goes up they go up quick there's no chance you better get out within seconds or you're just a dead man i mean those 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 blazes happen fast and he gets up there and that tear in his eye that emotion that he's getting and then seeing it and then the fire starting to take place and everybody is now being escorted out because they find that there's a fire and he's trying to stop them he's like no 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 we must play on the music the music and to me it was like his personal titanic you know, he where the band played on as the Titanic goes down. He knows he's going down. He knows this is the end, but the music must be shared and done. And I, I could I'm just imagining you as a create a creator of films and storyteller. You know, you probably have these stories inside you. Do you want to get out? And I can just imagine, you know, sometimes that drive. Obviously, not to his drive, his you know to the, to the extremes he's taken it, but I mean. It has to be something similar to how you felt like, yes, I want to get this. I got to get this film made and get it done. And that drive to get you through all yeah. these hurdles that you encounter. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, his life's work, the great concerts that I keep talking about the whole, the whole thing. And it's, yeah, he's got to, 
There's, where is that? I forget who it was, but the famous composer. He was on his deathbed, and someone was playing a, a piece of music, and then they stopped midway through, and he had to get out of bed <laughs> to finish playing the music so that he could just, like, he's literally dying. Um, forget who that composer was. Um, but yeah, that whole, and it's such a great shot. He's playing the, the last chords on the piano, the camera pulls away and he's just enveloped in smoke. Uh, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I get the power, powerful imagery and, um, I, at the Bernard Herman score is like, it, it carries them as much as, as Craigard's performance. It, it, it's where music is just augmenting the movie. And again, the way it was filmed it's unlike any concert thing i've ever seen done or any performance because usually you have the same types of shots but as you said the the movie is moving the it is showing you the music in a visual manner that i think is rarely ever seen there's probably other films that i just can't think of now that have done something similar to it going back to that but it was definitely the, for the first time probably at then in 1945 yeah showing it yeah yeah, especially because it's not a musical, but they're uh, they're approaching it like a musical in that sense, where you know, like a, a Vincent, like Ziegfeld Follies, where with camera, it's all just it's a it is music and dancing and and beautiful photography, and the camera would respond to different pieces of music and stuff. But that's a MGM glossy Vincent Minnelli musical. This is just. A, a gothic noir <laughs> that's you know um but but yeah i mean it's it's given such opulence and class uh because they cared they did care um and i think everything to me in life has the, the ebb and the flow or the proper harmony when if you go sometimes there's the discord as this movie talks about when he hears a discordant noise, that's what sets him off into these, this state if he's highly anxious at the time. But I think of films or when I'm teaching a red cross class with the ebb and the flow with the students going back and forth, this movie discussion, everything has an ebb and a flow and you know, it's working well when the ebb and the flow, the, 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 the two and the fro, the back and forth, whatever you want to call it is going so well that it's so smooth. And when you see something, and it, it could have no music at all in a film. So it could be, it could be like you could turn the film's volume down to zero and just watch it, but you could still see the way it is cut and edited and moved with the actors with their bodies. You can see the, the, the music of life, so to speak, being played out yeah. in front of you. And then when you turn the volume up and you can hear that music matching what you expect, it really adds something to it. So I think you know, this might be getting a little philosophical, but I mean, it's just, it's the way I look at, look yeah. at life. There's the ebb and the flow no, no, of everything. I agree. Yeah, no, I agree. Let's see. Also, we talked about the cinematography. We talked about the music. We talked about the director. One thing we had to bring up, and we brought up a little bit with some of the stuff that you said, and that is that the director and Laird Kriegard did not get along at all. Yeah. I think it's safe to say. Yeah during this production and, and and this could be from the layer, like the movie being changed, you know, from where he was expecting it to be, you know, the layer right. but also 
I think he was going with the understanding he was going to be able to play the music because he was a, he was an accomplished musician. Yeah, and they you, promised him that that he would have his own compositions played in the film. And there's even some conflicting stories saying that he had brought the novel to Fox's attention, that he wanted to do it, and that they bought it for him, and then he decided he didn't want to do it because he wanted to be Tyrone Power. Uh, uh, but I think, you know, so much of it was he was just so unhappy with where he was finding himself in life. And and uh, then they baited him by playing. They said, you know, if you do this, your next film will, will be Jean Valjean. Les Miserables, the new, you know, the 19, I forget what year it would have been planned for. Um, and it would, they even titled it Jean Valjean instead of Les Miserables. And so he would be the title character of that do you know the victor hugo heroic classic um that was what sort of like got him through the idea of okay i'll just do this assignment and you know continue my beautiful man campaign to um, change myself entirely change my physical look physical appearance my orientation my entire way of life what the way that people perceive me and um deeply troubled psychologically and that you know can't that you know you're bringing that to work <laughs> that's not gonna you know be the best uh attitude atmosphere and he would flub scenes because he was so distraught and george saunders didn't want to be there either so he would cause problems too and um it was not a happy production and um and i, I i'm yeah, and then when they had to go back for retakes, it was even worse because they had, you know, they'd gotten, they were just not happy campers and and very tense atmosphere. Uh, but that sometimes is like, you know, weird to say, especially, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a director myself, and sometimes the more difficult productions usually weirdly will get even better results. I don't know why that is. Uh, you know, sometimes you can have like the happiest, most fun experience making a movie and it can be crap. But the ones that are like difficult births, you, I don't know why that is the weird irony of, of filmmaking life. You, you sometimes just get something special. Um, just my own experience making Todd Tarantula on the film that came out this year, or mine. Um, this film took 12 years to finally get made and, and every step of the way was just a hurdle and um, and then I don't want to brag but I got like the best reviews in my career with it so like just the weird things and, and so for Hangover Square to be a very difficult uncomfortable unhappy shoot for all involved you still end up with this beautifully realized film um from all departments. Exactly. And one of the things I wanted to bring up that was the Lair Kagar was going to play the music. And then John Brom decided he wanted to have somebody else play the music, but he wanted um, Lair to mimic the music. And mm -hmm. you could tell there's such an advantage to having somebody that knows how to play an instrument. I'm sure you as a mm -hmm. filmmaker, because yeah. what you can, what uh, when you're watching the shots, because I was you know, so many times you, you have people that can't play Richard Gere is somebody that can play piano. And Gary Marshall used to always say when he had Richard Gere on a film, 
just just find an instrument because you can play so many different things and then you can just he'll, he'll just do something with it and it'll fit in with the scene yeah. and you can tell that they're they're so accomplished at that particular device and so Laird is there and you can just see how he's playing it and it adds so much to his acting when you have a perf- an actor that can also perform the instrument at a high level it works so yeah. well because it, it makes your job as a filmmaker so much easier because you have you you don't have to worry about cutting and having somebody else do the You have a technician basically. Yep. You have a technician on hand. They know what to do. Yeah. No, it, it's um but I would not trade I'm sure that Larry Kroger was probably a gifted musician too, you know, but I would not trade Bernard Herman's work <laughs> at all. Like that concerto is is some I where I was listening to it at one point it was during the, the lock pandemic lockdown. Uh, somebody had uploaded you know scores of of Bernard Herman and and I just kept listening to it because it's a twelve minute concerto, full concerto, it's, and the ups and downs of how he composes that and, and the intricacies of it. Um, it's one of Herman's finest compositions, and that's really saying something considering the man composed Vertigo, which is a work of art, the score. Or, um, you know, Fahrenheit 451, they still Citizen Kane, Magnificent Amberson, Taxi Driver. Uh, the list goes on and on, but um, the Concerto Macabre is just a masterpiece in its own way. Oh, I'm not arguing with you there. I'm just saying it was just interesting, yeah, yeah. you know, that I'm saying to have him be able to do that performance. But the music that Bernard Herman did, I think we both said, is just amazing. And we're going to do, when we when you and I are done talking at the end of the episode, we're just going to play that music, you know, at least a good portion of it, um, you know, so people can hear it and then, you know, get an idea of what we're talking about at the end of the episode. But no, I've, I really enjoyed this. Now, before we, we move on to something else, is there any other parts that you wanted to bring up that we had any other things in your notes that we haven't covered? Because I think we got most of mine. We got all mine. Uh, yeah, I think we've, we've, we've hit everything that, um, that can be really set. I mean, it's a great film. It's not the novel. I encourage, you know, just go out and, and discover the novel and read it for yourself. Um, and, um, I'm, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's, yeah, I'm, I'm happy now that I'm seeing it. There's something weirdly possessive. I don't know that I'm totally crazy, but like, because I have, I've grown up, I grew up with knowing about this and this film and this book and stuff that I feel a little possessive at times and protective at times of this character of George Harvey Bone. And I'm sure that comes from, you know, doing my own film of it when I was a teenager and, and um, just always thinking about it, and I'll see sometimes you know people talk about it online, and and um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it always feels like oh this is part of part of me. <laughs> that sounds so weird, but um, I I do love the film. I love the novel. I'm happy that it's getting a bit of a of a renaissance rediscovery, and. Um, and it deserves it. And and Laird Craigar deserves some extra love because he he destroyed himself. 
he destroyed himself at such a young age and he had so much more to give. He was so misguided and disturbed by his own personal demons. He couldn't see his own brilliance. And um, that is the great ultimate tragedy of, of this film, uh, the legacy of this film. And uh, just, just um, I think that it should just be enjoyed just to appreciate him. So I don't know if you're if you haven't seen the movie before, and if you still are intrigued after we spoiled the hell out of it, you should enjoy it for what what we lost with him because we did lose something. We did, and and for and if you're getting and listeners that have never seen him in anything, he has the voice of like Vincent Price, you know, with this this, mm-hmm. this clear voice, but the physique of Raymond Burr. And it's yes. like you put the two together and I love both those actors so much. And so when I, you know, when you're first listening and seeing him, you're automatically, when you first see him, you're thinking that's like Raymond Burr. And then when you start to, when you close your eyes and listen though, it's like, no, that's, that's like Vincent Price. So it's, it's like they had a love child, the two of them, Vincent Price and Raymond Burr, and he had Laird Krigar. Um, and it, but also like Raymond Burr, he had the thing where he was always playing the heavy for a long time until Raymond Burr got the Perry Mason. And then, and, and that's yeah. when pretty much everybody remembers him. And so who knows in, in, if he wouldn't have died so tragically young and had looked at himself differently and just weathered the storm and got through, he might've had that turn where he goes into either a career like Vincent prices, where he just embraces it and goes into all these different roles and has fun or he could have had a thing like Raymond Burr where you end up yeah. um, going in these things where you suddenly are the good guy and then you're able to be enjoyed. Yeah. And it could have been possibly in television or in some other type of movies where he could have found yeah. that perfect niche and then just ran with it because he was such a talented and great actor. And I didn't realize I'd actually until watching – this movie and doing research on him a little more that I had seen him years ago. Oh yeah. Decades ago in a movie, heaven can wait. Yeah. Where he's the devil. He's the very nice kind devil too. Yeah. Also, I want to say, I mean, you know, in, in Greg Mank's book, you you see, he came from, I mean, he, he kind of came out of nowhere and built this entire career and made himself into a, as I said, a viable Hollywood commodity, someone of value you, you want to have in your pocket. Uh, you know, when he played Oscar Wilde on stage, and then and and they they built this entire show around him. And opening night, he decides I'm not going to go on because I want you know this amount of money, and I want and and he was able to command these things. And he was, I mean, Joan Crawford came from literal nowhere and from poverty, but made herself into a star. Laird Craigar, in his own way, was doing the same thing and could have if he had not died so so early because of his his own own tragic neuroses. He could have become a huge star. I agree with the Vincent. Price. I mean, would Vincent Price have a career if Laird Craigar had become a star? Would he? Would Vincent Price have the impact that? You know, he still has to this day, you know, 30 some years after his passing, would Laird, you know, would Laird Craigar have been that guy? 
where, you know, he wouldn't have been a, a genuine movie star. He was so close to it. Uh, I mean, he, he kind of became one with the lodger, but to transcend that and to have a much longer lasting, you know, uh, legacy and, and body of work, he, he would have, he would have been a star. I, I really do believe it because he was smart in his own way. Um, he just, he, he just wanted, he, he didn't appreciate himself. He didn't have the self-love. And I think both Vincent Price and him would have both had great careers. I don't, I think because their, their physicality was different enough that I don't think they would have stolen too much from each other. There would have been some roles. I think, I think Laura, from what I read was a case where they both were up for the same role and it ended up going to, mm -hmm. um, in Vincent Price's case, it went to him and it was mainly because, they are, and people said, "Oh, if we had Laird, people would already think of the, he's the villain because he's already been typecast." Yeah. Well, of course, that right. happened to Vincent Price down the road, also, where you know, he, oh, he's there, the villain. I never, my dad and I were watching an old movie and had Basil Rathbone in it, and I'd never seen it before. And and that my dad was like, "Oh, he's he's the bad guy." And I go, "How do you know that?" Because it's Basil Rathbone, unless he's playing Sherlock Holmes, he's the bad guy. And that's right. so there was. Right. So there's typecasting that he knew from his days of watching movies. So, but yet Basil Rathbone got through it. Vincent Price, you know, he, he would have made it through and he, and he would have had a great career. I think they both would have, and you can only imagine the movies they could have been in together. That would have been something. Yeah. 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 Now you have a movie that just came out on Blu-ray as we're recording this, that's the 10th anniversary edition, the rising light. Uh, if you want to talk about yeah. it, so people know they can get it on Amazon, I believe, right? Yeah. I, I, this actually, this past month and a half of, of, I've had three of my older catalog films come to Blu-ray. Uh, the rising light is one of them. It's never been on home video before. Uh, I also have my, my Lovecraft Noir, the last case of Augustine Harris and Jerry Lacey and, um, it, yeah, my, my whole film catalog, I'm transitioning it over into to Blu-ray and uh, the rising light. It's an early effort, uh, early science fiction film with Captain Lee Scott and Lyndon Childs. He was on literally everything, uh, during the golden age of television with Hitchcock and whatnot. And, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cosmic science fiction, uh, film. And uh, it's it would be assumed by the time this episode is out, it should be released. Blu-ray is available on November twenty eighth. Um, but you can find that and all of my work. Todd Tarantula, the film I mentioned earlier, which is a film I'm very proud of. It's difficult to make, but I'm proud of it. Uh, is also available on Blu-ray and streaming. And um, my uh, all my uh, well, all my work is available at Hollinsworth productions.com h-o-l-l-i-n-f-w-o-r-t-h productions there's no g um and uh my films dr Mab dr mabuza trilogy uh loon lake my folk horror my love story will and liz um they're all on blu-ray and then coming next year uh my comedy the great nick d which um Features David Selby, Captain Lee Scott, Olan Jones, Sam Irvin, film director, 
uh, Laura Parker and sadly her final film performance. Uh, it's, uh, it's a comedy about um, about the pitfalls of Hollywood, really, <laughs> which Laird Carter would know well. And um, that'll be coming out uh, some point next year. That's what I'm dealing with uh, right now. And we'll have a, have a meeting about it after I complete this interview. <laughs> and, and listeners, I was, I was going to say, he's putting on his end of Blu-ray. Each time I look at it, my wow looks at me. It's like, come on, man. <laughs> but, I, you know, I, I, I got all of Ansel's films. I'm not going to – I'm a completist. And I, but the thing is, I like them all. So it's the beauty of it. So it's like, ah, I got to get them all. But I like I feel like a Pokemon collector. I got to get them all. Got to get them all. Yeah. <laughs> and we we put brand new special features on on the, the Blu-rays. You know, I'm I'm a physical media guy. I'm very much in support of that. Uh, streaming is uh, it's the idea of it is nice. You don't get paid, but also you can own it forever when you you know you buy it on DVD and Blu-ray. Although all my stuff is now just Blu-ray because uh, the presentation is in full HD and um, there's there's a, a bunch of unreleased material that's on these Blu-rays, and uh, you know I try to I try to put them together the way that if I was just you know a a consumer a, a well I am I I have a litany of DVDs and Blu-rays surrounding me right now, so it's you know I try to put together a nice package. It's not just a film; it's it's its own. You know, you get deleted footage, interviews, commentary tracks. So all the trimmings. It's like Thanksgiving, but on a blip, on a Blu-ray disc. <laughs> and if you, and we know Christmas is coming up, so if you know you have a film buff that's a family member or a friend, you, you can't doesn't do any better to get Will and Liz or Loon Lake or Todd Tarantula or any of the ones you just mentioned. You know, they're all great films out there. Uh, you can also see the journey of a filmmaker and it, go back to our interview that we did a few years ago. You can hear the journey, how we, and you can, I like to see the progression. You know, if you watch some of the early work, you can see where things started and you can see how things, how we learned how things got better and improved as the years go yeah. by. Cause it's just like with everybody that creates stuff, unless you're Orson Welles, where you come right out of the gate with, you know, citizen Kane, <laughs> most people have a progression. <laughs> the golden age of the studio factory studio system, which, you know, it doesn't exist any longer. And as an independent filmmaker with, you know, money is always the issue, but um, yeah, over time it's been, it's been uh, not that I'm going to say a little bit more money, but um, a little more help, a little more, a little more knowledge. Uh, knowledge is everything and how to make the most of, of what you have. And, um, and uh, communication with actors is everything. But um, no, I'm very lucky, and uh, you know, I'm. I hope that yeah, I hope that you, you check out my work and support independent filmmaking, and um, that you enjoy it. It's blood, sweat, tears, and pain, but joy. There's nothing I'd rather be doing. And I also want to say another thing you can get for Christmas to help people out that are also film fans. Laird Kriegar, A Hollywood Tragedy, the book by Gregory William Mank. Um, I want to thank Gregory, you know, for joining us and talking about Laird Kriegar for a few minutes, that he, you know, with us. And you can go back to a lot of his books. Just go on Amazon, type in his name. It's, it's a whole bunch of stuff in there. 
that I highly recommend that you get. And can I also add on to that? I got to say thank you, Mr. Mank. When I was reading your Lloyd Kroger book, it was late one night. It just had come out. And uh, at, towards the end, I, you know, you're discussing Hangover Square, and I happened to see, you know, in the addendum section, you mentioned my film. It said in 2009, Hangover Square was made again, directed by Ansel Farage with Moran Kanani and my school friend as George Harvey Bone and Chloe Ginsberg as Netta. I could not believe my eyes what I had seen you. <laughs> I mean, it's just a little footnote, but it made me so happy uh, to be mentioned you know, very fleetingly in your work. Um, and that, yeah, you, you, you gave my film a shout out and, um, legitimacy that was not asked for, was never expected. Uh, but, but it, it thrilled this very humble fan of you. (laughs) And it goes to show you that Greg does his research. (laughs) Yes. Lancel, I want to thank you for joining me, you know, and, and to talk about the this the Hangover Square. And I know we're going to be having you on again sometime soon, and you and I are going to be doing some other stuff together. But thanks again for joining me on this episode. Thank you so much for letting me ramble. Uh, it was fun. And listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please send us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. I hope everybody's been enjoying this. And again, if you want to hear more of Ansel on the our show, go back into our back episodes. He's on there several times and go get his movies. Otherwise we're going to leave out with a little bit of music from Bernard Herman that we already talked about. So we're going to exit with that. Everybody have a great day. Bye. <laughs>